This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Kelly Peters and Jill and Kent Easter. First, I'll look at the background of this case, move to the timeline of the incident, then the timeline of the crime, and finally move to my analysis. In early 2010, Kelly Peters lived in Irvine, California. She was married to a man named Bill. They moved to Irvine several years earlier after Kelly became pregnant with her daughter. Kelly left her job in the mortgage industry and volunteered at the Plaza Vista School in Irvine, where her daughter was a student. Kelly volunteered at the school's after-school enrichment program and was eventually elected PTA president. Now moving to the background of Jill and Kent Easter. Just like Kelly, Jill and Kent Easter lived in Irvine, California in early 2010. They were both attorneys who specialized in corporate and securities law. By this point, Jill had discontinued practicing law and was a stay-at-home mom. She had a son who attended the Plaza Vista School. Kent was a partner at a large law firm in nearby Newport Beach and earned $400,000 a year. Now moving to the timeline of the incident. On February 17, 2010, an incident occurred that would become significant later. Jill's son attended a tennis program at the Plaza Vista School. Afterward, he did not keep up with the other students who were entering the school and he was locked outside for about five to eight minutes. It sounds like the students were moving in a group, and he simply didn't keep up. So they went into the school, and the door was locked behind them, and Jill's son was stuck outside. The tennis coach ended up bringing the boy to the front desk. Jill was furious and confronted Kelly about the situation. Kelly told her that her son had been slow to line up with the other children, which is why he was briefly locked outside. Jill was not satisfied with this and walked away saying something to the effect that she did not know how Kelly slept at night with the way she treated people. According to Kelly, Jill also said, quote, I will get you, unquote. The next day, Jill claimed that her son had been crying hysterically due to being briefly locked out of the school. She demanded that Kelly be dismissed from her position. Jill tried to make it sound as though Kelly had used the word slow in reference to her son's intelligence, when of course Kelly was referring to a slow speed. The school investigated and found no basis to take any action against Kelly. After this, Jill went on a campaign, which could be described as harassment. For example, she approached other parents at the school and made unkind statements about Kelly. Jill reported the incident to the police. They told her no crime had been committed. 
Angel unsuccessfully attempted to get a restraining order against Kelly, saying that Kelly was harassing her and her son and had threatened to kill her. After this, Jill's husband, Kent, jumped into the fray by filing a frivolous lawsuit claiming that his son was the victim of false imprisonment and intentional infliction of emotional distress. He eventually dropped the lawsuit. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On February 16, 2011, which was one day shy of a year after the original incident, the police received a call at 1.15 p.m. from a man reporting a dangerous driver. The caller said that his daughter was a student at the Plaza Vista School, and he thought that one of the parent volunteers, named Kelly, may be under the influence of substances. The man was just at the school, and he saw that Kelly was driving her PT Cruiser SUV erratically, and he had seen drugs in her vehicle. The caller provided the operator the license plate number of Kelly's SUV. A police officer named Charles Shaver responded to the call. He arrived at the school and questioned Kelly. She told Officer Shaver that her car was already parked by 1.15 p.m., which was corroborated by school officials. Kelly consented to her vehicle being searched. The officer found drugs in the pouch behind the driver's seat, specifically 11 Percocet pills, 29 Vicodin pills, 17 grams of marijuana, and a ceramic pipe, which could be used for smoking marijuana. Kelly told the officer that someone must have planted the drugs. They did not belong to her. Officer Shaver knew that the caller had lied when he claimed to have seen Kelly's vehicle driving erratically at 1.15 p.m., but the officer only became more suspicious when he tried to reach the caller by phone. The phone number that the caller provided was invalid. At this point, Officer Shaver asked Kelly for permission to search her apartment, and she agreed. After thoroughly searching her apartment, the police officer couldn't find anything that connected Kelly to the drugs found in her car. For example, there was no sign of plastic bags similar to the ones found containing the drugs. Officer Shaver decided not to arrest Kelly. He didn't feel this was a clear-cut case and wanted the investigation to continue. Detectives who took over the case believed that Kelly had been framed. Kelly told them the story about Jill and Kent Easter. The police would eventually view that couple as suspects. The original phone call to the police about dangerous driving was examined carefully. The police noticed that the man started speaking with an Indian accent halfway through the call. The call was traced to a business center in the Island Hotel. This was only a few hundred feet from where Kent Easter worked. Video surveillance captured Kent walking into the hotel near the time the call was made. The police looked at Kent's cell phone data. They found that the phone had been pinging a tower near Kelly's apartment complex during the early morning hours on the day of the incident. This is when Kent must have planted the drugs. On March 4, 2011, the police simultaneously executed a few search warrants. In Kent's vehicle, they found diet pills in a plastic bag. The bag was similar to one found in Kelly's SUV. While the police were waiting to search Jill's house, they noticed a man walking up the street. When the man saw the police, he walked away and entered a pickup truck. The police pulled him over. As it turns out, the man was a firefighter named Glenn Gomez, who had been having an affair with Jill for two and a half years. The police convinced Glenn to wear a recording device and spy on Jill. During a recorded meeting between Glenn and Jill at a park, 
he told her that the police were asking questions about some girl. He thought it was a good idea not to see each other for a while until the situation resolved. Glenn was trying to get Jill to say something inculpatory. Jill accused Glenn of abandoning her and said that she would not survive this. Glenn told the police that soon after this conversation at the park, Jill showed up at his home with emails and photographs and told his wife about the affair. The police eventually discovered DNA from both Jill and Kent on the drugs found in Kelly's PT Cruiser. The case against Jill and Kent Easter stalled for a while. The prosecutor was not positive that a conviction against Jill was possible because her DNA was found on the drugs, but that didn't mean that she planted them. Eventually, however, charges were filed against both Jill and Kent. The couple was arrested in June of 2012. Kent lost his job as a result. I guess his law firm didn't think that drug-planting lawyer had a good ring to it. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcast, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. In October 2013, Jill decided to plead guilty to false imprisonment by fraud or deceit, which is a felony. She was sentenced to 120 days in jail. She would only serve about half that time. In November, Kent went on trial. Kent's strategy was to play the role of the hapless and emasculated husband who was captivated by his wife's beauty and brilliance. Evidence was presented showing that Kent did not have a backbone. He even stayed with his wife after discovering that she had an affair. Kent just couldn't say no to his wife because she berated him, manipulated him, and lied to him. The idea behind this defense was that Jill was obsessed with revenge, and Kent was just another victim. He did not know what Jill was up to. Kent claimed that during the early morning hours of February 16, 2011, when his phone was detected near Kelly's apartment, he was not in possession of his phone. Jill and Kent had switched phones. Jill must have planted the drugs when she had Kent's phone. Jill called him later that day and said that she had seen Kelly driving erratically. Jill insisted that Kent call the police and make a report. He did so out of fear 
of being belittled by his wife. Gilles did not testify at Kent's trial. The jury voted 11 to 1 in favor of guilty, and a mistrial was declared. Kent was tried again 10 months later. This trial was similar as far as the evidence presented, except for one key difference. The police discovered something that they had overlooked. As it turns out, Jill's phone was near Kelly's apartment during the time the drugs were planted. So it wasn't only Kent's phone. It didn't matter if the couple had switched phones. Both of the phones were there. This time, Kent Easter was found guilty. In September 2014, he was sentenced to 180 days in jail. He served 87 days. In February of 2016, a jury ordered Jill and Kent Easter to pay $5.7 million to Kelly Peters. By this time, Jill and Kent were divorced. Now moving to my analysis. Here are my thoughts on a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one. Even though Kent was certainly guilty and deserved to be convicted of a felony, it does appear as though Jill berated him and manipulated him. She pressured him repeatedly to make Kelly pay. In one message where Jill referred to Kelly, she wrote, quote, We are letting this no one abuse our son and then trash our family. Why? Unquote. The message included 68 exclamation points. Jill bullied her husband with excessive punctuation. In general, Jill appeared to use men to get what she wanted. She used Kent for his money and her lover, Glenn, for sex. Which brings me to item number two. Initially, Glenn did not want to cooperate with the police and believed that he was in love with Jill. It appeared as though even his training as a firefighter could not extinguish the burning desire he had for her. Text messages obtained by the police revealed the nature of their passion. For example, Jill referred to Glenn as Mr. Delicious and Sex Ninja. In an effort to reciprocate and induce nausea, Glenn referred to Jill as Mrs. Delicious and Sex Goddess. As it turns out, Jill's deity-level infidelity skills would not be enough to eternally capture Glenn's loyalty. He decided to cooperate with the police and spy on Jill. Glenn probably thought that he was being kicked out of heaven, but he was actually being freed from hell. Item number three, Jill had self-published a novel titled Holding House. She had an online promotional page that contained this message about the book. Quote, ever dream about the perfect crime? It's in this book. As you read, you'll be wondering why no one has thought of it before. It's shockingly simple, twisted, and 100% possible. Once you read about it, you'll be tempted to pull it off. Unquote. Except for the criminal and twisted references, it sounds like Jill was promoting a self-help book. The police actually read Jill's book, Looking for Clues. They should have received hazardous duty pay for getting through it. The protagonist in the book, named Libby, was a woman who worked in California as a lawyer. Libby was described as patient, intelligent, and possessing a strong desire for revenge. The plot of the book was that Libby and other well-educated friends kidnapped a high-profile target and waited in the Bahamas for a ransom to be paid. As this was going on, Libby became preoccupied with getting revenge on her narcissistic lover slash criminal conspirator, a handsome man who had rejected her. Libby made several steps to make him pay. For example, she emptied his bank account, 
framed him for violating his visa, and placed an anonymous call to the police. Libby finally achieved her revenge when the man brought an end to his own life. It sounds like Jill was projecting her own traits onto this fictional character. She was telling a version of her story through the character, especially the idea that she was justified in getting revenge due to being offended. Item number four, Jill and Kent viewed themselves as extremely intelligent and an unstoppable power couple. They used the fact that they were married to each other to their advantage during the criminal proceedings. A good example would be a clever strategy that Jill and Kent used in an attempt to be tried separately. Here's what they did. Jill confessed to planting the drugs, but the confession was only offered for the narrow purpose of getting separate trials. It could not be used against her in court unless it was repeated under different circumstances. The idea behind the couple's strategy was that, given this confession, Kent would naturally want to call his wife as a witness during his trial, but he would not be allowed to do that if they were tried together. Here's what the state thought that the couple was trying to do. Jill would be tried first, she would choose not to confess during her trial, and therefore would be acquitted. Again, the case against her was not as strong. This was before the police realized her cell phone had been near Kelly's apartment. After being acquitted, Jill could not be tried again, because that would be double jeopardy. Therefore, during her husband's trial, she could confess without consequences. Her confession would result in Kent being acquitted. Both he and his wife would have beaten the system. The judge saw through their plan, and they were ordered to stand trial together. Item number five, what do I think happened in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. Jill had a number of characteristics of narcissism. She was grandiose, envious, arrogant, condescending, had a sense of entitlement, a lack of empathy, and was extremely vindictive. She felt as though she had the right to always have her way. During the incident involving her son being briefly locked out of school, Jill was outraged because she viewed Kelly as a nobody. Jill became offended despite the fact that Kelly was not actually involved in her son's predicament. Jill thought to herself something like, how dare Kelly inconvenience my son? This activated Jill's vindictiveness and compelled her to involve her husband in a criminal scheme. Despite their extreme confidence in their abilities, Jill and Kent were clumsy criminals. Among their many mistakes, they used drugs with their DNA on them and brought their cell phones with them when they planted those drugs. Moving to my final item, number six, was justice served in this case? Some people look at the felony convictions for Jill and Kent Easter as too severe. This destroyed Kent's career and made it so Jill could never restart her career, even if she wanted to. In my opinion, Jill and Kent actually deserved not only the felony convictions, but longer prison sentences. I think they should have been sentenced to at least five years in prison. They were trying to frame somebody, trying to make somebody into a criminal, and that person was not a criminal. Unfortunately, this five-year prison sentence idea exceeded the sentencing guidelines. The judge also indicated, in the case of Kent specifically, that the prisons were simply too full to put him there for a long time. Jill and Kent Easter are now free to do whatever they want, although it's not clear what types of careers or endeavors they will undertake. If Jill ever feels restless because she believes she is now not adequately terrorizing innocent citizens, 
she could always consider self-publishing another book. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. I'm an American vigilante. question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.